This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. If I can get people to pick up some of Newton, I think it will be a great, great value to them. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master. I am joined, as always, by James Dalzell. James, how are you? I'm doing well. And we have the opportunity to welcome one of our favorite guests, favorite colleagues, favorite people, uh, Keith Plummer. We have the the blessing, really, of being all in the same hallway together, so we get to talk with Keith all the time. And so uh, he was kind enough to join us today. So, Keith, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We and get, I'm going to listen to future podcasts to see how many other people you say are your favorite Yeah, I guests. say that every time. Uh, so. <laughs> but we get to talk to Keith about something that Keith loves to talk about. Yes. Um, both to us personally, but also via Twitter and other ways that he puts the word out. So I'll let you take No, it no, away. I think that's a good that's a good intro. And um, maybe at the end, we can even give Keith's Twitter handle out so that people can follow him. But we want to talk to you today, Keith, about uh, John Newton. And you, you do, you tweet a lot about this. We've talked a lot about Newton and the influences writings have had on your life. But I want to take a step back from that and say, how was it that you got kind of uh, brought into the world of Newton and were influenced by him? Sure. Well, the story actually goes quite a ways back. When I was um, serving in pastoral ministry several years back, a friend of mine named Kier Norwell said, knowing of my interest in pastoral counseling and pastoral theology, he said, I think you would really like reading some of the letters of John Newton. So I got an abridged version from Banner of Truth paperback, and I, we're talking, this was like the early 90s or somewhere in there. And I read it, and I, I did appreciate it, but I think also because of the just where I was in my own spiritual maturity, um, I, I didn't really appreciate it to the extent that I do now. He was my introduction. Over the years, I came across Newton. I think Tim Keller on the Gospel Coalition had posted some things with reference to him. Then I came across um, Tony Ranke's Newton on the Christian Life and Barbara Duggett's book uh, on Newton's uh, theology as it relates to sanctification. And with each thing that I read, I became more interested in reading him more on his own. And so the the desire arose in me to get his complete works. There was a new edition, or there is a new edition that Banner of Truth has put out. And my children, uh, my son and my daughter, Candace and Brandon, in reverse order, respectively, uh, they gifted me with this four-volume set a few years ago for my birthday. And I started just making my way through the works. Uh, years ago, I had heard, I think it was John Piper, recommend to college students that they find a mentor from the past, a Christian from the past whose works they would immerse themselves in and allow them through their writing to be an influence upon them. And for years I had sought for some, someone that I might uh, adopt in that way. And I was hoping that this was going to be it. And in fact, this was it. So over a course of maybe two and a half years, I um, read through the works and it, it has been just such a great, great source of nourishment 
for me in, a, in multiple ways of which we can discuss. But that's a, an abbreviated version of how it is that I became interested in, in Newton. Yeah, one of the things that has always struck me as I've watched you kind of go through this is that you have been very disciplined and you've just read short portions of Newton. You, you're reading books all the time, writing reviews all the time, but you've been very systematic in your approach to Newton. So roughly, what, is that, what does that look like? You've read five pages a day or, or how have you broken it down? You know, I was never that systematic. And, and in all honesty, I, I said I was going to go through volume by volume. I did cheat a little because volume two consists of a lot of hymns. And I didn't want to, I said, I'm going to save those for last. I wanted to read the sermons and I really wanted to read the letters. So honestly, I didn't come up with a plan. Usually in the, in the morning when I would read scripture, I'd have some time with coffee, I would um, read a portion there, or sometimes I would, you know, it'd be later in the day, I would read some, but I didn't have a schedule. And to be quite honest with you, the desire to read was so strong and for the most part constant because of what I was deriving from what I was reading that I didn't have much difficulty with um the consistency. In fact, there were times when I was away, um, like on a business trip or something like that, and I didn't have the hard copies with me, I would miss having that accessibility. So there was just a, a real hunger because of the benefit that I was enjoying that kind of drew me along. Now, that's not to say there weren't some dry spells, uh, but for the most part, it was pretty smooth going. So let's talk a little bit about some of the benefit. What kinds of things, uh, maybe you could say one of two things, maybe topics that he addresses or the way that he addresses himself to questions he's often answering in those letters. Uh, what is it about Newton that makes him um, of pastoral benefit to a modern reader? Um, there, are, there are several things. One of the things that just really captured me and that I have said, I may have even tweeted this at one point, I said, I read John Newton because he helps me to better know my heart and the one who alone can remedy it. Um, one of Newton's favored metaphors, pictures of Jesus as the great physician, and that because of his understanding of how sin-sick our, our souls are. And um, he, he said a lot about the necessity of self-knowledge uh, for one's own growth in holiness and maturity, but also with respect to one's effectiveness in ministry to others. So he, he focused very much on the necessity of the knowledge of one's own heart and the sin, even after conversion, that is still very much active there. And he said that this was necessary so that we might prize Jesus and love him more. And so one of the things that you read throughout his works is this idea of this uh, going back and forth that we do see more and more of our own inconsistencies, weaknesses, and um, sinfulness, and that makes us more humble, dependent upon Jesus, and um, more appreciative 
of him. And so that is one of the things that I just really, really gained from that. In fact, this is something that he wrote related to that. He says, as to myself, I have had much experience of the deceitfulness of my own heart, much warfare on account of the remaining principle of indwelling sin. Without this experience, I should not have known so much of the wisdom, power, grace, and compassion of Jesus. And Newton was emphatic that while it is that we can assent to and, and believe to some extent Jesus' words, apart from me, you can do nothing, that there was a necessity, an ongoing necessity, to experientially come to the realization of that by the awareness of our own faults, our weakness, and our inconsistencies. One of his lines that I love, uh, self-description, he says, I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistencies. And, and I think his ability to capture our inability to even make sense of ourselves and necessity to have God interpret us and give us the understanding of what and who we are apart from him. That's one of the things that I have really gained from. It seems to touch on something else that I've heard you talk about before, which is Newton's spirit of engaging in controversial issues, how his humility in engaging in controversial issues, his uh, peaceable spirit. I, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit, because certainly we live in a contentious age in all kinds of ways, um, but, but even in theological discourse. And you've often commented on Newton's own attitude towards those kinds of controversial issues. Yes. Newton had uh, an uncanny ability to travel in a variety of theological circles. He was uh, an Anglican priest. He was part of the Church of England, but he maintained fellowship and friendship with um, Independence, Baptists, the dissenters, uh, Methodists. Um, and he often caught flack for that. Uh, some people thought that he didn't draw boundaries well enough, but he, he had a, a peaceable spirit while he was very much committed to the doctrine of his church, and he was particularly committed to the doctrines of grace and the sovereign grace of God in salvation. And he often lamented the fact that that did not issue forth in the humility that those truths should. At one point, he says, as a company of travelers fall into a pit, one of them gets a passerby to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out, as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. In the same way, a truly saved man will no more despise others than blind Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. And when it came to theological controversies, one of the things that I would strongly urge listeners to find and read, and it's available many places on the internet, is a letter that he wrote to a minister who was writing or was preparing to write critically of another minister on a point of doctrine in which he thought that there was some question of orthodoxy. So uh, to his credit, he wrote Newton 
asking for advice. And you can find this letter, his response is called A Guide to Godly Disputation. But in the beginning of his letter, he, he says this, as to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart, to love and pity him, and such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. And he goes on and talks about, um, you know, if you consider him a brother, the obligation that that bears upon you, if you consider him an unbeliever, still this is the manner in which you are to deal with him. And throughout the rest of the letter, he gives great counsel concerning considering how you respond, uh, both with respect to how it is going to impact the one to whom you're responding, how it is going to be received and impact the audience, those who may read it, both those who are already in agreement with you, as well as those who take a stance contrary to yours, and particularly in our social media age, where the immediacy, the hot take, is just like so valued. I have found personally that returning to this guide to godly disputation is a, a necessary corrective to my inclinations to respond in fleshly ways. So maybe maybe in the age of um, instantaneous knee-jerk reaction cemented permanently online <laughs> where, we, mm -hmm. where we sort of vent off the top of our heads uh, any objection that we might have, uh, Newton offers us counsel for uh, maybe being careful and looking out for the interests of others, even if we're required to oppose their teaching somehow. Yes. I've read a bit of Newton myself, and uh, that squares with this um, this perpetual sense of self-distrust that he has. I don't yes. know if you get that, but just he's not to the point of being frozen in place and unable to speak or counsel or stand up for truth, but there's a, a deep introspective, not morbid, I think, but a deep introspective self-assessment of his own liabilities and shortcomings that are always sort of on the forefront of his mind. Yes. And, and as you said, it, it's not morbid. If anyone hears us and they think, they get the impression that somehow this is a morose character who's joyless and cold, mm. you certainly do not get that from his writing. And those who knew him did not know him in that manner. He was a man. One of the, another thing that I just so appreciated is while he took sin seriously and he said, the reality of sin is serious and deep. He realized that grace is, is greater. And so he said that the Christian life is one that is commingled with a joy in our redemption along with a lament for our sin. And he uses this illustration of the, the treble clef and the bass clef of music where the melody is in the treble clef and you may have the, the bass clef where you've got these you know, more somber tones and so forth, but you can have a melody in the treble. And he said, in, in some ways, that is the nature of the Christian life. We, we rejoice in the knowledge of our acceptance and our full pardon that Christ is all, while 
we don't take sin lightly, and there is an appropriate sense of the self-distrust that you said, the um, grief over sin, that there is a desire to um, be farther along than we are, but it's not a matter of one or the other, that there is this um, paradox of their coexistence. So I wonder if we see that even so clearly in his, in his best-known hymn, Amazing Grace, mm-hmm. you know, such a wretch as I. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. that modern updated wording of it. You know the line where he calls himself a worm in the mm-hmm. song? In the song um, I've seen an updated version that says, instead of for such a worm as I, it says for such a one as I. <laughs> and there's, yeah. this, like, there's yeah. this desire to move away from any kind of self-disapproval. Um, as yeah. if that was somehow, we couldn't really rejoice in God if we were so self-disapproving. Um, right. It, you know, I don't know and, if you cringe just, when you sing that version the opposite. of it. Yeah, he is the opposite. That's right. Yes. Yeah, it sh- and it should be the opposite. You know, I, I talked about his favored image of Jesus as the great physician. Um, in one of his letters, he, he says this, the more sensible we are of the disease, the more we shall admire the great physician, the more we are convinced that the creature is vanity, the more we shall be stirred up to seek our rest in God. And another theme that comes out just so voluminously in in his writings is, this is a man who is convinced not only of the absolute sovereignty of God, but the absolute goodness of God, and that that God really, in his providence, is seeking the welfare of the, the people that he loves. I mean, he was just, that, that's another thing that I just really gain from reading him, just that reminder, that assurance, that your disappointments, your frustrations, your joys, all of this God is working together. And He's, he's doing it because he really, really loves you. Keith, there's so much to talk about when it comes to Newton. We haven't even touched on his biography, and um, per- perhaps we have a minute or two to do that. But I wanted to sort of wrap up the, the section on his writings and ask you, having read through the collected works, where would you suggest that someone who wanted to get a taste of Newton begin? Uh, Would it be with the letters or just start with volume one? Uh, Where can you really get the sense of the man most clearly? If someone wanted to start and they they didn't want to commit to the works, I I would say finding a volume of his letters, that would be a very good place to start, especially for, uh, as you said, a sense of the man. And this is another thing that, that struck me in our age of platform, Newton wrote these letters, and we have these letters at our disposal, not because he set out at first to publish, but because he, as a faithful pastor, sought to give spiritual counsel to people who were seeking his aid, and he was taking the time to correspond with people who were looking for biblical guidance. It was not his intent to publish these things, but these letters were so helpful to so many people that they urged him to make them available to others. And so this was not a platform-seeking thing. 
it was just a man who loved the Lord and who loved the church, who was making time to disciple people through correspondence. And it's interesting concerning letter writing. One of the things that he said with respect to theology students, he said, uh, the, the student of divinity will do well to cultivate a correspondence with a few select friends. For epistolary writing seems nearest to that easiness of manner which a public speaker should aim at. Hmm. And and I suppose if he had been thinking of that in terms of a platform, there, there's a certain unself-consciousness that comes through. He's concer- He's genuinely concerned about the person to whom he's writing directly. Yes. Yes, I I think I want to contrast this to so many modern kind of pious aphorisms that people they they get it into enough characters to fit on Twitter. And it's not a it's not I'm looking at um, a couple statements from his biography um, where he says, I expect to be saved as a sinner and not as a saint. I, I could imagine even a modern reform minister writing that on Twitter and fishing for 500 likes. You know, where where Newton's just writing that in a letter to an individual with no thought of any eyes other than that individual seeing it. And it does it does lend a sort of genuineness to the flavor of his piety. It doesn't feel like my tweetable piety, please like yes. this, if I could say it like that. As far as he knew, when he was taking the time to write, this was just going to be received and read by the person on the other end because he cared about them. And I am so grateful for their um, urging him to make these things available because I have, and countless others, uh, I have, I have prospered so much though. They are not written directly to me. um, They have been a great, great treasure for me in terms of my walk with, with Christ. And I know that we, that, like you said, uh, Jonathan, there's so much to be said about Newton. But one of the things that he is also known for, and this is a whole other area, but just as his involvement in the slave trade and the role that he played in being a spiritual guide and encouragement to William Wilberforce in terms of, um, you know, leading to the abolition of slavery in, in Britain. Uh, he's got a, a work called uh, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. Now, I will admit, as I was reading through this as a black man, there were some things that I, especially when I was reading his letters to his wife while he's on the seas, and he's this is early in his, his Christian life, but, you know, I would have loved the narrative to go, he came to Christ, he immediately saw the, the evil of the slave trade, and he left. Actually, he didn't leave except for a, what some believe is an epileptic seizure that prevented him from being involved in the slave trade anymore. And over time, and he addresses uh, without excuse, he says, people will wonder why it is, why I remained in and did not immediately leave. But he, he wrote a work in 1787 as part of his assistance with um, William Wilberforce called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And he opens it with um, a quotation from Matthew seven twelve: All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then beneath that in Latin, he includes homo sum, 
which means I am a man. Hmm. And this work, which I, I believe is also available online, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, is um, his speaking about the atrocities of the slave trade and the detrimental dehumanizing effects both on the British and on the African slaves. And if, if I could just read his concluding line. Yeah, please. He, he says, um, though unwilling to give offense to a single person in such a cause, I ought not to be afraid of offending many by declaring the truth. If indeed there can be many whom even interest can prevail upon to contradict the common sense of mankind by pleading for a commerce so iniquitous, so cruel, so oppressive, so destructive as the African slave trade. And and when he, he preached about it and when he wrote about it, it was not, as you can imagine, always welcomed. But I am very glad that uh, he was willing to speak about that in the manner that, that he did. Well, maybe at some point we can even have an entire conversation just devoted to that because that, I mean, it's just scratching the surface really. But Keith, thanks for giving us your time today. It's, it's always a pleasure. And I hope that among other things, it creates a, an urge in our listeners to pick up Newton for themselves. I hope so. That's one of the reasons that I tweeted as much as I did. If I can get people to to pick up some of Newton, I think it will be a great, great value to them. Are, are you going to start over again? I have. Yeah. Oh, you but, have? Now, I don't know if I don't know if I'm going to go through everything. Like I, I don't know, but I have, I have begun again because I know I've missed a lot. I know that there is a lot that I need to be reminded of and. I thank God for saving John Newton. Well, we're thankful for your ministry in our lives and even your time with us today. So, Keith, thanks uh, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk with you guys. Thanks, Keith. Well, James, not much we can add to that. Keith is uh, is just a joy to have as a friend and uh, it's always fun when we can have him on. I would, I would say this to our listeners. I, I don't think I've ever recommended a Twitter feed on uh, Theology on the Go, but I'll recommend Keith's. And it's at X-I-A-N Mind, one word, X-I-A-N Mind, Christian Mind, X-I-A-N Mind. And uh, he tweets a lot about Newton and about other things. He's really worth worth following if you do that kind yeah. of thing. And um, we have the benefit of being able to speak with him face-to-face. Yeah, and that, I, I'm glad we were able to talk to Keith about Newton. Maybe 20 years ago or so, I read Josiah Bull's Life of John Newton. At the time, it was called But Now I See. I think Banner now publishes it as The Life of John Newton. And it's uh, Bull was one of his correspondents. And there's it's kind of a, a life and letters sort of volume. But as I pulled it off the shelf in preparation for our discussion with Keith, looking at looking at underlines, and um, and it really is impactful. And it's not that kind of phony sounding, self effacing. Because it, it isn't meant for public consumption. And you really get the genuine authenticity of a man uh, who lives broken over his sin, but also, as Keith was talking about, joyful in his Savior. There's a real upbeatness that isn't at the expense of, of a right and proper self-assessment. 
Well, if you go to the Banner of Truth website, there are a number of different volumes of Newton's letters and then the works of John Newton that you can um, access there and purchase. Um, if you would like to enter for a chance to win the letters of John Newton published by Banner of Truth, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a place for you to enter there. Um, as always, we're thankful for you, our listeners. We love to hear from you and get any feedback you might have, any suggestions. And if you're able to recommend the podcast to other people, we we appreciate that. We also appreciate those of you who are able to donate. Uh, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And we rely on those donations to keep things going here. Uh, and thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.